Before I start the show, I just wanted to give a shout out to my latest patron, Jordan. Jordan is my newest stone dog and super deserving of thanks because all of my patrons are awesome and every time I get a new one, it fills my heart with warm fuzzies. Thank you very, very much, Jordan. Thank you, Stone Dogs. Thank you, Night Spears. Thank you, DK Moon, my Thunderwalker. I love all of my patrons. You folks are the best. Podcast of the Dragon comes to your device. Hey everybody, my name is Morgan. You might know me as the Grey Warder on Twitter and Discord. Welcome to episode 23 of Podcast of the Dragon. Doviande Setovias again. Yes, I did say that in italics. Today we're continuing on with Matt spending time with him in the White Tower and reveling in the subtleties of RJ's writing skill and ability with characterization. We'll also explore some of Matt's defining personality traits and reflect on his luck and his choices as he makes his way to Tear. The first time we find ourselves in Matrim Cawthon's head is in Chapter 19 of The Dragon Reborn, the chapter called Awakening. Coming out of the fog after healing, I imagine for Matt it was kind of like when you wake from an extremely vivid dream and you can barely recall it at first. And then even once you've really, really concentrated, you can barely remember it for the most part. Like, a lot of it is hazy, and you are struggling for the little bits and pieces you can grasp. And some of what you do remember of the dream, maybe it didn't happen in that dream. Maybe it happened in another dream, and you're just not quite sure, because only some of the dream is clear or feels like it's true. Only instead of a dream, it's his life. Matt opened his eyes slowly and stared up at the white plaster ceiling, wondering where he was and how he had come there. An intricate fringe of gilded leaves bordered the ceiling, and the mattress under his back felt plumped full of feathers, somewhere rich then, somewhere with money, but his head was empty of the where and the how and a lot more besides. In trying to empathize with Matt, I imagine that maybe it might feel like an almost constant sense of deja vu. When you have a single instance of deja vu, it feels weird, and you take a moment and assess things to make sure that that's what it was, and you move on. But I once had a period of days where I experienced deja vu multiple times, and it was incredibly disorienting. 
Each instance made me less and less sure of my own experiences and reality. Before that time, I had always enjoyed it when I got deja vu because it's such a novel sensation. But I've disliked it ever since because I'll never forget how weirded out I was not being sure if I had actually experienced what I thought I had experienced because my sense of my own experiences degraded each time I felt it. And I'm wondering if that's kind of what it feels like for Matt. It's not as easy for me to identify with him as it is to identify with Rand or with Perrin, but I do know how disconcerting it can be to need to second-guess yourself, like, you know, wait, is this real? You know, is this my life? And I can imagine how off-balance he must feel about the whole thing. The Dragon Reborn is a great transitional book, where Jordan is getting his other main POV characters where they need to be before the events of The Shadow Rising. He gives himself a single book to cover a ton of ground with Perrin, Egwene, and Matt, both in developing them as people and in leveling them up. RJ does a wonderful job in these handful of Matt chapters where he's in the White Tower, having us learn him as he remembers himself, as much as he can remember. He lays the foundation for the intense distress that Matt feels at the holes in his memory, a distress so profound that when he's agitated inside the realms of the Eelfin and railing about what he wishes, just his angry outburst, he's just sort of like, I would like these holes in my fucking memory filled, and careful what you wish for, Matt. RJ has this book where he can let us know, hey, this is a problem. This is troubling for Matt. He's really struggling with this. And so we know that it's a thing. So that when he leads us into book four, and the issues with Matt are complex there, and also RJ has a number of things that he has to develop, people and plot points to focus on, so he can't give a ton of time to Matt in the Shadow Rising before he sends Matt through the doorways. And that's okay, because we already have the foundation laid to understand, yeah, this isn't cool. Matt is really not okay with the fact that he can't remember much of his life. It stresses him out. You know, he plays it cool and acts like it doesn't matter, but it does. It is my humble opinion that the first Matt point of view that we get in Chapter 19 of The Dragon Reborn is absolutely masterfully written. I think it is some of the best writing that RJ does in the entire series which might be one of the reasons why Matt so quickly cements himself in the heads of people who really do like him. A central cause of that appreciation might just be because of how well written it is. RJ does it in such a way that any exposition or recap that he is giving you, information that you already know but that he is giving to you again as he is prone to do too much of in the first three books, he feeds it to you in this flow of consciousness introspection that Matt is engaging in that is interwoven with this very ordinary activity of eating, and it's wonderful. He describes this meal, and anyone that I have talked to about it says that this meal sounds badass, and the way that R.J. describes food is wonderful. He describes food in several instances throughout the series, and except when it's spoiling or it's Elaine's bland pregnancy diet, it always sounds pretty great. But this one scene is absolutely iconic throughout the series for RJ's descriptions of food. RJ treats Matt to this giant gluttonous feast, and we sit with him, and as he works his way through his feast, he works his way through some problems. So he lifts his napkin off his tray, and it says, 
One plate held slices of a beef roast piled thickly with brown mustard and horseradish. On others there were roasted potatoes, sweet beans with onions, cabbage and butter peas, pickles and a wedge of yellow cheese, thick slices of crusty bread and a dish of butter. One pitcher was filled with milk and still beaded with condensation on the outside, the other with what smelled like spiced wine. There was enough of everything for four men. His mouth watered and his stomach growled at him. First I find out where I am. But he rolled up a slice of beef and dipped it in the mustard before pushing himself away from the table toward the three tall, narrow windows. Wooden shutters carved in lacy patterns covered them, but through the holes he could see that it was night outside. Lights from other windows made dots in the blackness. For a moment he sagged against the white stone windowsill in frustration, but then he began to think. You can turn the worst that comes to your advantage if you only think, his father always said, and certainly Abel Cotham was the best horse trader in the two rivers. When it seemed somebody had taken advantage of Matt's father, it always turned out that they had gotten the greasy end of the stick. Not that Abel Cawthon ever did anything dishonest, but even Terran fairy folk never got the best of him, and everybody knew how close to the bone they cut, all because he thought about things from every side that there was. So we see right there that Matt was taught from a young age to think about eventualities and plan for different scenarios, which is one of the reasons why he is such a good general. So as he eats, Matt just kind of talks himself through the gaps, you know. He's trying to figure out... Why am I here? Where am I? And so he figures out, okay, well, it's got to be Tarvalin. I was sick. Now I'm not. That means they healed me. And he's kind of grossed out. They, they use the one power, which I think is maybe a mistake on RJ as far as the writing, because Matt had the one power used a whole bunch on him throughout the Great Hunt. But that could also just be one of those things that Matt doesn't remember. But his instinctive dislike or distrust of the one power is there, and so you're getting that dislike and revulsion that he had all along, maybe. And so, like, he never really wanted it used on him, but he knew it was necessary, and so he just shut up and suffered through it. But regardless, he figures out that it is Tarvalin and thinks to himself, well, I was gonna fucking die, so I guess it's better than dying that they used the one power on me. It says, Unsteadily he made his way back to the table. There was a stool underneath. He pulled it out and sat down. Not bothering with knife or fork, he made another roll of beef. How could he turn being in Tarvalin? In the White Tower, it has to be. To his advantage. Tarvalin meant Aes Sedai. That was certainly no reason to stay even an hour. Exactly the opposite. What he remembered of his time with Moraine and later with Varen was not much to go on. He could not recall either of them doing anything really terrible, but then he could not recall a great deal of that time at all. Anyway, whatever I said I did, they did for their own reasons. And those aren't always the reasons you think they are, he mumbled around a mouthful of potato, then swallowed. An Sedai never lies, but the truth an Sedai tells you isn't always the truth you think it is. That's one thing I have to remember. I can't be sure about them even when I think I know. It was not a cheering conclusion. He filled his mouth with butter peas. So, he's talking it out and telling himself common aphorisms that we've heard before but that he might not remember until he speaks them, and then he's like, oh, here are these words of wisdoms that come pouring forth from my mouth as I'm trying to remember who I am and, like, even get my brain to function. So, then Matt goes on to think some pretty sophisticated thoughts about gold and trade. Matt actually really understands how a city functions, which... Looking over the course of the story, 
There's nowhere in the time from his adventuring from the two rivers to the point that he gets to Tarvalon where he would really have learned that information, at least not from actual exposure. He barely spent any time in Kyrien or Barlon. He had no time to explore, and he never went out when they were in Camelon. And when I ask how does he have this understanding of the function of cities and commerce and trade and just money in general, considering he hasn't really spent much time wandering around a city, I can only conclude that he acquired it by listening, listening in the inns when they were in those cities, talking and interacting with Shinerans, and perhaps by some plain old deduction. And maybe it's also something that he learned from his father, or learned from his father's business, or learned just from talking to and interacting with merchants and their guards. Matt is the kind of guy, if he's gambling with merchants' guards as a kid, he's probably saying to them, tell me about the world outside. In fact, we know that's true, because they tell him stories about the dragon, and they tell him stories about men who could channel. Matt always has a story that a merchant's guard told him. So why wouldn't they, along with telling him stories, also tell him basic facts like, oh yeah, there's lots of cool shit in Tarvalon, it's a big center of trade. And we're kind of learning here that despite what we've been led to believe, Matt is someone who could continue to extrapolate from that. Oh, if it's a hub of trade from the borderlands to the south, that would make it the richest city in the world, and go on from there, because he actually does have a brain and the ability to put information together and draw further conclusions from that. So, Jordan, while our lovable rogue is mowing down, emphasizes Matt's fear of the power, his mistrust of Aes Sedai, and then he has him remember that he blew the horn of Valir. And there's this cute bit where he's whistling a tune about being down at the bottom of the well, and it says, For the moment, he felt sick again. Determinedly, he tried to think, tried to penetrate the fog that shrouded everything in his head. Varen had been bringing the horn to Tarvalon, but he could not remember if she knew he was the one who had blown it. She had never said anything to make him think so. He was sure of that. He thought he was. So what if she does know? What if they all do? Unless Varen did something with it I don't know about, they have the horn. They don't need me. But who could say what I said I thought they needed? If they ask, he said grimly, I never even touched it. If they know, if they know, I'll, I'll handle that when it comes. Burn me. They can't want anything from me. They can't. So this sets up a sense of anxiety or distress, this burning desire to leave, which leads perfectly into the next chapter where Lanfear shows up to unnecessarily stoke paranoia in Matt about Aes Sedai and accidentally let him know perhaps under the influence of his Taviran, that Ishamael is going to want to dissuade or kill him, which Ishamael immediately starts doing as Matt begins to leave Tarvalon in a couple of days, and also to talk to him about her favorite thing in the world, the glory. And the funny thing about Matt is that even though in his inner narrative Lanfear is described as so beautiful that he forgets to breathe, he's not as swayed by her. Not as swayed by her even as Perrin, and definitely not as swayed by her as Rand, which pisses her off when the best that she gets from him when she's like, hey, you know, do what you want. If these Aes Sedai want to use you and you're cool with that, that's fine. But you don't need to be a puppet, and you don't need to be prey for dark friends. I can help you out, you know, remember your choices. And when she does all of that and puts in all of that effort and Matt is just kind of like, yeah, I suppose, she's fucking pissed. It says... Celine's look sharpened. 
Friendliness sloughed off her voice like an old snakeskin. Suppose? I did not come to you like this. Talk in this way for suppose, Matram Cawthon. She stretched out a slim hand. Her hand was empty, and she stood halfway across the room, but he leaned back away from her hand as if she were right on top of him with a dagger. He did not know why, really, except that there was a threat in her eyes, and he was sure it was real. His skin began to tingle, and his headache returned. Suddenly, tingle and pain vanished together, and Celine's head whipped around as if listening to something beyond the walls. A tiny frown appeared on her face, and she lowered her hand. So I'm pretty positive that she's holding a ward to make sure that nobody comes upon her, and this is triggered by Swan and Liana coming down the hall to visit and check on him. And before Lanfear fucks off, she's basically like, a lot of people want to kill you, and I'll guarantee you life, but you need to do what the fuck I say. And it says, Matt let out a long breath. Sweat ran down his face. Who in the light is she? A dark friend, perhaps, except that she had sounded as contemptuous of Baalzamon as she was of Aes Sedai. Dark friends spoke of Baalzamon the way anyone else might speak of the Creator, and she had not asked him to conceal her visit from the Aes Sedai. Right, he thought sourly. Pardon me, Aes Sedai, but this woman came to see me. She wasn't Aes Sedai, but I think maybe she started to use the one power on me, and she said she wasn't a dark friend, but she did say you mean to use me, and the Black Aja's in your tower. Oh, and she said I'm important. I don't know how. You don't mind if I leave now, do you? Going was beginning to be a better idea by the minute. He slid awkwardly off the bed and made his way unsteadily to the wardrobe, still clutching his blanket around him. His boots were on the floor inside, and his cloak hung from a peg under his belt with pouch and sheathed belt knife. It was just a country knife with a stout blade, but it could do as much as any fine dagger. The rest of his clothes— Two sturdy wool coats, three pairs of breeches, half a dozen linen shirts and small clothes had been brushed or washed as required and neatly folded on the shelves that took up one side of the wardrobe. He felt the pouch hanging from the belt, but it was empty. Its contents lay jumbled on a shelf with what had been emptied from his pockets. He brushed aside a red hawk's feather, a smooth striped rock he had liked the colors of, his razor and his bone-handled pocket knife, and freed his wash-leather purse from some coils of spare bowstring. When he tugged it open, he found his memory had been all too good in this instance. Two silver marks and a handful of copper, he muttered. I won't get far on that. Once it would have seemed a small fortune to him, but that had been before he left Emmons Field. He stooped to peer back into the shelf. Where are they? He began to be afraid that the ice that I might have thrown them out the way his mother would if she had ever found them. Where? He felt a surge of relief. Way in the back, behind his tinderbox and ball of twine for snares and the like, were his two leather dice cups. They rattled as he pulled them out, but he still popped off the tight-fitting round caps. Everything was as it should be. Five dice carved with symbols for crowns and five marked with spots. The spotted dice would do for a number of games, but more men seemed to play crowns than anything else. With these, his two marks would become enough to take him far away from Tarvalin, away from Aes Sedai and Selene both. I love what the list of Matt's stuff says about him, because it really does kind of outline the character. It says that, along with having magpie-like tendencies with his feather and his rock, he is practical and prepared. He's got snare lines and bowstrings and the means of making fire, and he's already carrying multiple knives, less for self-defense at this point than for the fact that different types of knives are better for doing different types of work. 
but I just happened to notice this when I was putting together this podcast, and I wondered if it might be foreshadowing, since we never hear of any of the other characters having more than one knife, except for Tom, of course. Matt Stuff also says that he has a lack of pretensions with his simple clothes, and even says to himself that they're sturdy. They're plain but respectable. His knife is as good as a fine dagger. His stuff is as good as any lord's. Already laying the foundation that he is as good as any fancy pants person. The fancy coat that he has made in the next book? He only does that because he wants to play cards with the people who have the real money. But this just shows on its own how simple that world-building or characterization can sometimes be, just by giving an inventory. Inventorying someone's pockets gives you information about who they are. You really can learn a lot from the kind of shit that people have that they carry around. And maybe it's just because I'm a gear junkie that I find that so enchanting, but I really, really do. Then Matt gets a visit from the Omerlin seat and the Keeper of the Chronicles, where he learns that Swan has more or less trapped him. He's trying to think of how to get out of here, and then they show up, and they're basically talking over his head about his condition, and how he has eaten everything, and how he's probably still hungry, and it says, I'm not hungry at all, he announced. I'm fine. If you will let me put my clothes on, I'll show you how well I am. I will be out of here before you know it. They were both looking at him now. He cleared his throat. A uh, mother. The Omerlin snorted. You've eaten a meal for five, and you will eat three or four like it every day for days yet, or else you will starve to death. And, just as an aside, I love that R.J. pays such close attention to subtleties when it comes to point of view. Here he has a woman, who usually eat less food than men, say that the meal that Matt was given is food for five people. Matt, an adolescent male, looked at the meal and said it was food for four. I just think that that's great attention to detail. <clears throat> You've just been healed from a link to the evil that killed every man, woman, and child in Aradol, and no less strong for near two thousand years waiting for you to pick it up. It was killing you just as surely as it killed them. That is not like having a fish spine stuck in your thumb, boy. We very nearly killed you ourselves trying to save you. I am not hungry, he maintained. His stomach growled loudly to give him the lie. I read you were right the first time I saw you, the Omerlin said. I knew right then that you'd bolt like a startled fisher bird if you ever thought someone was trying to hold you. As well, I took precautions. He eyed them warily. Precautions? They looked back, all serenity. He felt as if their eyes were pinning him to the bed. Your name and description are on their way to the bridge guards, the Omerlin said, and the dockmasters. I'll not try to hold you inside the tower, but you will not leave Tarvalon until you are well. Should you try to hide in the city, hunger will drive you back here eventually, or if it doesn't, we will find you before you starve. Why do you want to keep me here so badly, he demanded. He heard Selene's voice. They want to use you. Why should you care whether I starve or not? I can feed myself. The Omerlin gave a small laugh with little amusement in it. With two silver marks and a handful of copper, my son, your dice would need to be very lucky indeed to buy all the food you'll need in the next few days. We do not heal people, then let them waste our efforts by dying while they still need care, in addition to which you may yet need more healing. More? You said you had healed me. Why should I need more? My son, you carried that dagger for months— I believe we dug every trace of it out of you, but if we missed even the smallest speck, it could still be fatal, and who knows what effect your having it in your possession so long may have. 
half a year from now a year and you may wish you had an isodida hand to heal you again you want me to stay here a year he said incredulously and loudly liana shifted her feet and eyed him sharply but the omerlin's calm features were unruffled perhaps not so long as that my son long enough to be certain though and this just continues on where mad and swan sanche have a back and forth and swan eventually lets him know hey yo you blew the horn of valir and you're tied to it and as long as you're alive it won't be anything but a horn for anyone else and he's like you could have let me die and she's like yep and he's like fine fine i'll blow the horn for you i didn't say i wouldn't and she compares him to her uncle juan who died pulling children out of a fire and asks if he will be there when the flames are high and when they see each other again in lord of chaos and he asks her to dance she says to him i asked you if you would be there when the flames are high but you make a habit of jumping into fires which i've always found a great little interaction matt only has a handful of interactions with swan sanche but i love them all but swan would never have let him go she wants to keep a hold of the Taviran in the tower she wants whatever control she would have so to trap him by refusing to let him off the island she can tell herself that that is reasonable because hey he's not actually a prisoner because the entire city of tarvalin is a pretty big cage a pretty big cage with a lot of cool shit in it but it's still a cage and he would still be a hostage much in the same way that in a couple of months she's going to be holding Min hostage in the tower. And Min she'll be holding hostage with emotional blackmail, which, frankly, I think is almost worse. I'm not the biggest fan of Swan. She's kind of an asshole. And she does what she does for what she feels is the greater good and the good of the world, but she's a dick, and she's intractable. She has to have her way, and I don't really feel that she necessarily knows what she's doing she's definitely a compelling character and i absolutely love her story arc but i don't care for her as amerlin she's a bully and while i don't think she deserved what she got i think she's an asshole and she would never let matt go but he doesn't do well being caged rj along with giving descriptions and outlining matt's character and building up this trap that he's in and the misery and anxiety that it's causing him he uses these few days that Matt is in the tower to communicate a few more things to us. We're shown that, yeah, he's actually very intelligent. He's resourceful. He can manage perfectly well on his own. Before now, we've only ever seen him in company with people that most of us think of as far more competent than he is, or we have thought of that up until now. And we get to see that he is capable of close-quarters combat in the wonderful scene with Galad and Gowan that everybody loves. Matt's bow went missing somewhere on the way to Tome and Head. The last that we see of it is in Steading Sofu, and after that, it's just gone. You don't hear about it when you see him on Tome and Head while they're scouting, and then he's using the dagger as a weapon when they're fighting in Falma, so who knows where it went. But he is without a bow until he makes one in Book 10 when he buys the U-Stave. So it's great for RJ to demonstrate that Matt is not only capable of close-quarters combat, he's talented at it, good enough to beat two skilled swordsmen at once even though he's weak and sick, and that is a totally new light to see him in, because he was always the rogue archer before that, you know, kind of squishy, only good for ranged combat unless he has his enchanted murder dagger. But now we can see, okay, he's actually a pretty well-rounded fighter. 
One of the things that makes The Dragon Reborn so entertaining isn't just that we get Matt point of views. It's the fact that there's the sense of lightness to Matt that we don't get later on where there's this weight and almost resentment of the pattern to him. And I think it's that this is really the only book where Matt has true agency with minimal responsibility. He will make choices later on in the series where they are his choices, but they are generally random and spontaneous choices, like pointing randomly at the wandering woman in Ibu Dar and being like, we're going to stay at that inn. And that's, it's an expression of agency, but he is being really tied down to a path by the pattern within the context of that. He's not controlling the path of his life at all, just this tiny little part of where he's going to spend the night. In The Dragon Reborn, he's completely choosing his direction, where he gets to make reasoned choices and if it is fate, or being Taviran that's pushing him toward Tyr, rather than just the fact that he earns his key out of Tarvalon by agreeing to carry Elaine's letter to Queen Morghese, and then once he's in Caelan, he overhears Gabriel slash Robin's plan to have Lord Comar kill the girls, he still makes the choice, I'm going to go to Tyr and help them, I'm not going to let anything bad happen to them if I can help it, which is not the pattern forcing him to do anything, or Rand telling him to do something, or him making any kind of a promise that holds him to do something. It's just his choice. Throughout Book 3, RJ really cleverly sketches Matt's personality, as far as how transactional-slash-mercenary-slash-selfless he actually is. We go into The Dragon Reborn with a vision of Matt as kind of a thoughtless or selfish youth, and then R.J. shows us this favor-for-a-favor favor interaction with the girls as they ask him to carry Elaine's letter to Queen Morghese. What favor, he asked suspiciously. Nynaeve did not ask favors in his recollection. Nynaeve told people what to do and expected to see it done. I want you to carry a letter for me, Elaine said before Nynaeve could speak. To my mother in Camelon, she smiled, making a dimple in her cheek. I would appreciate it so very much, Matt. The morning light through the windows seemed to pick out highlights in her hair. I wonder if she likes to dance. He pushed the thought right out of his head. That does not sound too very hard, but it's a long trip. What do I get out of it? From the look on her face, he did not think that dimple had failed her very often. She drew herself up, slim and proud. He could almost see a throne behind her. Are you a loyal subject of Andor? Do you not wish to serve the lion throne and your daughter heir? Matt snickered. I told you that would not work either, Egwene said, not with him. Elaine had a wry twist to her mouth. I thought it worth a try. It always works on the guards in Camelon. You said if I smiled. She cut off short, very obviously not looking at him. What did you say, Egwene? He thought furious. That I'm a fool for any girl who smiles at me? He kept his outward calm, though, and managed to maintain his grin. I wish asking were enough, Egwene said. But you do not do favors, do you, Matt? Have you ever done anything without being coaxed, wheedled, or bullied? He only smiled at her. I will dance with both of you, Egwene, but I won't run errands. For an instant he thought she was going to stick out her tongue at him. If we can go back to what we planned in the first place, Nynaeve said in a too calm voice. The other two nodded, and she turned her attentions on him. For the first time since coming in, she looked like the wisdom of old, with a stare that could pin you in your tracks and her braid ready to lash like a cat's tail. You are even ruder than I remembered, Matram Cawthon. 
with you sick so long, and Egwene and Elaine and I taking care of you like a babe in swaddling I had almost forgotten. Even so, I would think you'd have a little gratitude in you. You've talked about seeing the world, seeing great cities. Well, what better city than Camelin? Do what you want, show your gratitude, and help someone all at the same time. She produced a folded parchment from inside her cloak and set it on the table. It was sealed with a lily and golden yellow wax. You cannot ask for more than that. He eyed the paper regretfully. He barely remembered passing through Camelin once with Rand. It was a shame to stop them now, but he thought it best. If you want the fun of the jig, you have to pay the harper sooner or later. And from the way Nynaeve was now, the longer he kept from paying, the worse it would be. Nynaeve, I can't. What do you mean you cannot? Are you a fly on the wall or a man? A chance to do a favor for the daughter heir of Andor? To see Camelin? To meet Queen Morgase herself in all probability, and you cannot? I really do not know what more you could possibly want. Don't you skitter away like grease on a griddle this time, Matram Cawthon? Or has your heart changed so you like seeing these all around you? She waved her left hand in his face, practically hitting him in the nose with her ring. Please, Matt, Elaine said, and Egwene was staring at him as if he had grown horns like a trollop. He squirmed on his chair. It is not that I don't want to. I cannot. The Omerlins made it so I can't get off the blit. The island. Change that, and I will carry your letter in my teeth, Elaine. R.J. shows us in this scene here that Matt will not be pushed around, and I think that if he could have gotten off the island without the Omerlins, what the bearer does is done under my authority paper— he would have fucked with them for a bit more and finally eventually agreed to carry Elaine's letter, depending upon their behavior. If they had continued on this downward spiral of acting like dicks rather than just saying, yo, please, he might have not. Because he won't let them push him around. They walk in without knocking, and it even says, like, he stands up when they walk in, he's going to put on a shirt because it's considered polite to do so, and then he's like, what the fuck, and he sits down. He's like, you know what, fuck that. I'm not going to do that when they don't even knock, which, good for him. I think that that's a good boundary to draw. So he doesn't appreciate their presumption, and Nynaeve and the others feel entitled. Nynaeve more or less says, yo, we've seen your fucking dick. We wiped your ass. We were changing your diapers for ages, you know. We've been more intimate with you than we liked as we dealt with you while you were sick. All of which is true and which is part of what I think makes it contentious, because they're like, yo, it's not like we wanted to be staring at your dick five times a day while we were changing your diapers, and I think it's part of what makes it hard for them to see him as an adult. And then, into the next book, he's man-whoring in the stone, which is utterly outside of Two Rivers' sexual mores, and that is particularly difficult when it comes to Nynaeve. I set Egwene aside, because Egwene is judgy about that shit, but she also has a different path, and she ends up being the one who kind of on her own, when he comes back into their lives when they're in Saladar, can see Matt and look him in the eye and accept him as he is. But Nynaeve, and by extension of her, Elaine, because Elaine believes Nynaeve and takes into account Nynaeve's understanding of Matt, Nynaeve sees Matt as a man-whore, and because within the confines of Two Rivers' sexual morality, women who are not within the institution of marriage aren't going to be as eager for sex as men, so in her mind, Matt has to be pushing his attentions on women and just generally being kind of a sleazy asshole, because the Two Rivers is so slut-shamey that no Two Rivers woman would welcome the attention he is giving women in the stone, 
And so Nynaeve has this vision of Matt, like a box that she won't let him outside of, where she generally has a fairly low opinion of him. And it's sort of like that opinion is locked in. And then Elaine takes her opinion as gospel until Matt shows her, I'm not fucking who you thought I was. And then she's like, oh, you're not what I was told. And yeah, I mean, Elaine should have just used her own fucking eyes, but Matt likes to be a dick as well, which I think is partly a defensive thing and also partly just wanting to tweak the nose of people with pretensions, which I get, I really do get that. But after showing this scene where Matt is being transactional with friends, RJ goes on to unveil more of Matt's nature when it comes to how giving or selfless he is. He runs into Tom Marilyn in the inn The Woman of Tanchico as he's had his really lucky night. He has quit in the middle of gambling because he's freaking out about how lucky he is. He gets followed by the dark friends that he thinks are footpads. He climbs up on the roof and is attacked by the gray man on the bridge, flips out into the air and lands on top of him with spectacular luck. For the first time, he says it's time to toss the dice as he flips them both off the bridge. And then, because he doesn't want to be seen standing over a dead body, he goes into the nearest inn and he sees Tom. And basically, he shit-talks Tom for being a self-pitying drunk. And then he feels bad about it, because Tom's pretty miserable. He's drowning himself in wine because he feels guilty about Dina's death, and he also feels guilty because he knows that his assassination of King Galdrian was one of the main causes of the civil war in Kyrien, and lots of people are dying because of it. And Tom doesn't feel great about that. So he's drowning himself in wine, and putting himself in a situation where he's kind of like, yeah, this is a bad place for me to be, where I could potentially get killed, and, you know, good, I deserve it. And Matt's like, dude, you fucking sound like an asshole. You sound like you're feeling really sorry for yourself, and that's not normally what I would expect of you, and it's kind of pathetic. And Tom gets super pissed, and then Matt feels bad, and it says, the Gleeman had saved his life, and maybe more. A fate had been involved. That was why Tom's right leg did not work as well as it should. There could not be enough wine on a ship to keep him this drunk. I am going to Caneland, Tom. If you need to risk your fool life for some reason, why not come with me? So, this moment of Matt being giving is semi-transactional just in the sense that he feels like he owes Tom. But in inviting Tom along, he never actually mentions in his inner narrative, I owe Tom. It's just... He saved my life, and there's a sense of concern. He does it out of kindness, and so it's not nearly as transactional as what he engaged in with his friends, and while he's gruff and grumpy, the actions don't match his thoughts or his words, which is typical Matt. And we see that again when Tom and Matt get to Arangil, and they find themselves surrounded by hordes of refugees that are coming over into Andor from Kyrian. They disembark, and Matt is talking shit to Tom about their ship captain. Captain Malia sailed past the girls' ship. The girls had to get off their ship, and they meet the Aiel, and then they get captured by the bandits, all because the ship got caught up on the sunken boat. And Matt makes a comment about how Captain Malia just floated on past and didn't help the other captain, and Tom says, And you go out of your way to help people, do you? Strange how that has escaped my eye. I'll help anyone who can pay, Matt said firmly. Only fools and stories do something for nothing. The two girls sobbed into their mother's skirts while the boy fought his tears. 
The woman's deep-set eyes rested on Matt for a moment, studying his face before drifting on. They looked as if she wished she could weep, too. On impulse, he dug a fistful of loose coins out of his pocket without looking to see what they were and pressed them into her hand. She gave a start of surprise, stared at the gold and silver in her hand with incomprehension. They quickly turned to a smile and opened her mouth, tears of gratitude filling her eyes. Buy them something to eat, he said quickly and hurried on before she could speak. He noticed Tom looking at him. What are you gawking at? Coin comes easily as long as I can find somebody who likes to dice. Tom nodded slowly, but Matt was not sure he had gotten his point across. Bloody children's crying was getting on my nerves, that's all. Fool Gleeman will probably expect me to give gold away to every waif that comes along now. Fool. And this kind of sets the stage for Matt's pattern of engaging in acts of decency and then telling himself in his inner narrative that he only did it to get something out of it in return. You know, I only did it because they were crying and I wanted them to shut up. And for emphasis, later on in this chapter, which is called A Hero in the Night, he rescues Eludra. He and Tom are settling down for the night in the barn of the inn called the Good Queen, and Eludra comes in and she has dragged in her cart of fireworks, and then Tammuz and the other illuminators follow her and are going to cut her throat, and so Matt leaps down on the ropes and bowls them over. Tom throws him his quarterstaff and he knocks them all out, and she rewards him by giving him the fat roll of fireworks that he uses later on to blow a hole in the Stone of Tear. And Eludra decides to leave and head off toward Lugard because she figures that Tammuz and the others will assume she went toward Camelin, and it says, Matt suddenly remembered that hard end of bread, and she had said she had no money. The fireworks would buy no meals until she found someone who could afford them. She had never even looked at the gold and silver that had spilled from his pockets when he fell. It glittered and sparkled among the straw and the lantern light. Ah, light, I cannot let her go hungry, I suppose. He scooped up as much as he could reach quickly. Uh, Eludra, I have plenty you can see. I thought perhaps he held out the coins toward her. I can always win more. She paused with her cloak half around her shoulders, then smiled at Tom as she swept it the rest of the way on. He is young yet, eh? He is young, Tom agreed, and not half so bad as he would like to think himself. Sometimes he is not. So, in Arangil, R.J. just shows Matt being a hero for strangers. He gives money to a desperate-looking refugee woman, and he saves a woman from getting her throat cut, and then he goes on later on in the story to rescue the girls. And it's true that R.J. is showing Matt chivalrously rescuing women, and I did wonder for a while would Matt have done the same for a man. Yeah, I do think he would have. If R.J. had wanted to showcase a sad guy holding his kids, Matt would have given some money to a guy. Matt does show kindness to men as well as women, and he did show Matt showing kindness to his friend Tom. But there is a point to emphasizing a certain level of chauvinism with Matt, because both he and Rand, and Perrin to a lesser extent, struggle with that weakness. So to set the stage for that, R.J. shows Matt having a soft spot for rescuing women. And then when he and Tom are attacked on the road by dark friends, he hesitates to kill a woman and is furious when Tom does. And then Tom's like, yo, she would have stabbed the shit out of you with this gigantic dagger. Look at this. So RJ lays the foundation in this book where we see that, no, Matt is actually pretty selfless. He engages in transactional things, but it's more bluster and show and refusing to be pushed around than because he refuses to do anything unless there's something in it for him. He didn't rescue Eludra to get fireworks out of it. He just did it because it was the right thing to do. 
And yeah, it was impulsive, but he wasn't about to let somebody kill someone. Man or woman, he wouldn't have let somebody just kill someone who was defenseless. That's not cool. Matt doesn't let people hurt other people when people are in a weaker position. He doesn't like bullies. And so RJ shows us that, yeah, he's literally like Tom says, not nearly as bad as he wants people to think or as he thinks that he is. Because when the plot takes Matt to Camelin, where he overhears Gabriel slash Robin's evil plot to kill the girls, he immediately sets off to save his friends and tells Tom, I gotta get to Tear. I've got a wager with Gabriel, and he rolls the dice, and it's like, I always win. So, RJ uses the Dragon Reborn to make certain that we are aware of these personality traits that are pure Matt, pre-Eelfin Matt. And he does it while Matt is still feeling reasonably happy. So, pre-Stone of Tear Matt as well, pre-Back-in-Ran Sphere of Existence Matt, where he feels trapped by Taviran. It says while Matt is leaving the tower... With as light a heart as he could remember having in years or so it seemed, he began to hum We're over the border again, heading toward the harbor where vessels would be sailing down to Tyr and all the villages along the Aran in between. And admittedly, this is before he starts gambling and his luck goes nuts, and then he gets followed by the dark friends that he thinks are footpads, and ends up killing the gray man that he doesn't know is Shadowspawn, and then, later on in the night, on Captain Malia's boat, he ends up killing two other people and tells himself, I've killed three people in one night. I've never hurt another person before, because he does not remember the people that he killed in Falma. So, maybe Matt's lightheartedness really only lasted until he started gambling like crazy and got accused of having the Dark One's luck. And speaking of the Dark One's own luck... Jordan also makes use of this book to develop the first of Matt's powers and to have him gain some understanding of it. So, the chapter The First Toss, a.k.a. Matt's Lucky Knight, is one of the most entertaining chapters in The Dragon Reborn, and honestly one of the most entertaining chapters throughout the entire Wheel of Time. And for first-time readers who haven't gotten Matt's point of view yet, I always notice in read-through podcasts, it seems like the podcaster who is familiar with the series is always very excited for their first-time readers to get to this chapter because of how fun it is. And just, you know, it's partly entertaining, I think, because suddenly Matt is really interesting. It's not just that he's interesting or what marks him out is the fact that he has this evil murder dagger from this city that is cursed and poisons him, or that he's blown this horn that calls heroes back. His interest is not just in these things, these artifacts that mark or define him. Now he has an actual power. And here it says, The first inn Matt entered had three dice games in progress. Men crouched in circles near the common room walls and shouting the wins and losses. He only meant to gamble an hour or so before finding a ship, just long enough to add a few coins to his purse, but he won. He had always won more than he lost, as far as he could remember and there had been times with Huron and in Shinar when six or eight tosses in a row won for him. Tonight, every toss won. Every toss. From the looks some of the men gave him, he was glad he had left his own dice in his pouch. Those looks made him decide to move on. With surprise, he realized that he had nearly thirty silver marks in his purse now, but he had not won so much from any one man that they would not all be glad to see him go. And... You know, all of this is fine, like, he's a little weirded out by it, but it's not super disturbing, as long as he's only gabbled for 30 minutes. 
He's given himself an hour to gamble, and in 30 minutes he's turned the six silver marks that he has, his original two and the four that he got from Gowan and Galad for beating their asses with his quarterstaff, into 30. But he's going to go to the docks, and then the sea folk guy who lost a whole bunch of money is like, dude, come on, come on, I want to get my money back. And Matt's like, well, I've only used half an hour, and I was going to give myself a whole hour, so yeah, I'll go into another inn with you, and you can bet on me, and you'll win your money back. And it says... He won again, and it was as if a fever gripped him. He won every throw. From tavern to inn to tavern he went, never staying long enough to anger anyone with the amount of his winnings, and he still won every toss. He exchanged silver for gold with a money changer. He played at crowns and fives and maiden's ruin. He played games with five dice and with four and three and even only two. He played games he did not know before he squatted in the circle or took a place at the table and he won. Somewhere during the night, the dark sailor, Rob, he had said his name was, staggered away, exhausted but with a full purse. He had decided to put his wagers on Matt. Matt visited another money changer, or perhaps two. The fever seemed to cloud his brain as badly as his memories of the past were clouded, and made his way to another game, winning. And so Matt keeps going and going until someone happens to make a comment because he throws five crowns five times about how he's got the Dark One's own luck. And Matt freaks out and throws the guy against a wall and is like, don't fucking say that about me. And the dude's like, whoa. And so Matt just grabs his shit and walks away and leaves his money. And before he grabs his shit, he's thinking to himself, burn me, not the Dark One's luck, not that. Oh, light did that bloody dagger really do something to me? And it's kind of like, at this point, it's Matt's turn to feel unclean. He finally does. But unlike Rand and Perrin, Matt processes it in a much more detached fashion so that once again he sees this as something that has been done to him, rather than something that's of himself. It's not something he has any agency over or anything that's part of him. He's not taking any responsibility for the dagger. It's just, they did something to me. The Aes Sedai did something to me. Somebody did something to me. It's not, I took this dagger and now something's changed and it's on me. I'm dirty because I did something and it's on me. It's someone else's fault. So he decides he's done gambling and he's going to head down to the docks and he is pursued by the dark friends. Before he climbs up on the roof, he's ducking around alleys to try to find a place to hide because he doesn't want to fight them. And it says... A man appeared from back the way he had come, crouching as he eased himself ahead one slow step at a time, and then another man. Each carried a knife in his hand and moved as if stalking. Matt tensed. If they came just a few steps closer before they noticed him hiding in the deeper shadows of the corner, he could take them by surprise. He wished his stomach would stop fluttering. Those knives were a great deal shorter than the practice swords, but they were steel, not wood. One of the men squinted toward the far end of the narrow street and suddenly straightened, shouting, "'Didn't he come your way, then? I have seen nothing but the shadows,' came the answer in a heavy accent. "'I wish to be out of this. There are strange things moving this night.' Not four paces from Matt, the two men exchanged looks, sheathed their knives, and trotted back the way they had come. He let out a long, slow breath. "'Luck. Burn me if it's not good for more than dice.' And then he decides, okay, well, I'm not going to take the streets anymore. I don't want to deal with this. So he climbs up on the sky bridge and gets attacked by the gray man. 
and because he's about to get a knife in the throat, he flips them both out into the air and says it's time to toss the dice, and he attributes his survival to luck. And throughout the rest of The Dragon Reborn, Matt is trying to understand his luck, as he and Tom Marilyn are leaving Tarvalon on a Terran ship with a captain who hates Aes Sedai and is endlessly gushing about the High Lord Salmon, a.k.a. Balal, and how wonderful and smart he is, it says, Matt was beginning to wonder if the luck that had been with him all night had deserted him at last. He was going to have to put up with Tom's snoring, and truth to tell, it might not have been the best luck in the world to jump onto this particular ship waving a paper signed by the Omerlin seat and sealed with the flame of Tarvalin. On impulse, he pulled out one of his cylindrical leather dice cups, popped off the tight-fitting lid, and upended the dice onto the table. They were spotted dice, and five single pips stared up at him. The dark one's eyes, that was called in some games. It was a losing toss in those, a winning in other games. But what game am I playing? He scooped the dice up, tossed them again. Five pips. Another toss, and again the dark one's eyes winked at him. If you use those dice to win all that gold, Tom said quietly, no wonder you had to leave by the first ship's sailing. He had stripped down to his shirt and had that half over his head when he spoke. His knees were knobby and his legs seemed all sinew and stringy muscle, the right a little shrunken. Boy, a twelve-year-old girl would cut your heart out if she knew you were using dice like that against her. It isn't the dice, Matt muttered. It's the luck. I said I luck, or the dark one's luck. He pushed the dice back into the cup and capped it. So, he's trying to puzzle it out. The whole evening has left him incredibly unsettled, and so he's like, what's going on here? What's going on here? And the fact that he's trying to figure it out, and he's ruminating about luck and everything that happened that night, and thinking about footpaths and how he was stalked and attacked, that's the reason that he's aware of the boat bumping against Captain Malia's ship, and so he's prepared for the two dark friends that get up on the ship and come down to attack him, so he's able to avoid being murdered in his bed, which he thinks is pretty lucky. Then they get to Arngill, and before they go off to sleep in the stable and end up rescuing Eludra instead and having to leave in the night, Matt wants to buy the horses that the innkeeper has, and the innkeeper doesn't want to sell his horses, and so Matt's like, hey, I'll dice you for them, you know, my best toss to your best too. And it says... Five sixes, Tom muttered behind him. The looks he cast around the stable did not seem as enthralled as they might, seeing that he had suggested it in the first place. Dust motes shone in the last light of the setting sun coming through the big doors, and the ropes used to hoist hay bales hung like vines from pulleys in the roof beams. The hayloft was dim in the gloom above. When he threw four sixes and a five on his second toss, he thought you'd lost for sure, and so did I. You have not been winning every toss of late. I win enough. Matt was just as relieved not to be winning every throw. Luck was one thing, but remembering that night still sent shivers down his back. Still, for one moment, as he shook that dice cup, he had all but known what the pips would be. So that gives us a little insight into, like, okay, Matt's luck is something that he can feel. If it's strong enough, he can tell that it's going to work. And then he gets to Camelin, and he ends up having to sneak into the palace because he's sent away from the gate by Gabriel's men, who act like dicks when they find out that he has come from Tarvalon. So he decides to climb over the wall and get in the same way that Rand did, admittedly by accident in his case, and he depends on his luck to get him safely into the palace. 
when he says he's going to do it while he's still in the library of the Queen's Blessing, it really fucking alarms Basil Gill. And Matt happens to pull Gill's dice cup off the mantle, and he spins out the dice and once again gets the Dark One's eyes. And Gill makes the comment, that's the best or the worst, depending on your game. Why don't you go out and lose some money with that dumbass? I'll get the daughter's letter to the palace. And I think that RJ has Matt roll the Dark One's eyes in these situations where things are super dangerous or ambiguous. You know, having him roll it on the ship to be like, you know, because everything's in flux and Matt's trying to figure out what the fuck happened tonight. What the fuck happened tonight? And it was such a mix of luck and danger and narrow escape that he's throwing the Dark One's eyes over and over again. Or being like, I've got to sneak into the palace to get Elaine's letter to the Queen. And then he's going to find out about this plot to murder the girls, and so he's throwing the Dark One's eyes. So it's like the dice are saying, hey, fucking high stakes here, you know? It could be really good, it could be really bad. You don't know. Do you win? Do you lose? But RJ has Matt finally solidify his understanding and figure out his first power, his luck, when he gets to Tyr. He's looking for Komar, who's there to kill the girls, and he's very methodical with his looking. He does it with a pattern. He's like, we'll just go to every inn, we'll check them all, we'll find him, we'll do it before he kills the girls. And he goes so hard that he ends up being exhausted. And out of exhaustion, Matt ends up walking past three inns. And Tom's like, yo, we need to go to sleep and go out again in the morning because you've walked right past a bunch of inns. And Matt's like, okay, I'll go into this last one. So it's the first one that he goes into at random, and there's Komar. And Komar has been gambling all night, stealing money from people with his weighted dice. And Matt's like, oh, he wins, does he? That's interesting. I'd like to try my luck against somebody else who wins. And so he sits down, and after Komar's toss, Matt snags the weighted dice before Komar can do the sleight of hand trick to swap them out. It says, he spilled the dice onto the tabletop. They bounced oddly. He felt something shifting. It was as if his luck had gone wild. The room seemed to be writhing around him, tugging at the dice with threads. For some reason, he wanted to look at the door, but he kept his eyes on the dice. They came to rest. Five crowns. Komar's eyes looked ready to pop out of his head. You lose, Matt said softly. If his luck was in to this extent, perhaps it was time to push it. A voice in the back of his head told him to think, but he was too tired to listen. I think your luck is about used up, Komar. If you've harmed those girls, it's all gone. So, Rand has to be walking past the door, and that's why Matt feels an urge to look. And it's like, there are times when Matt senses that intense tugging of his luck, but I almost think both Rand and Matt, in that moment, their Taviran is overlapping or something, so that it's like the two of them working together completely worked against the dice. Like, I don't know that Matt's luck alone could work against weighted dice. It can work against things that are random, but things that have actual intention, not so much. But Rand can cause things that are incredibly unlikely to happen. And so Rand absolutely could make weighted dice fall a different way. And so I think the two of them worked in conjunction there. So, Komar hears that Matt's after the girls, hears him use his name and threaten him, and he tries to stab Matt, and Matt fights him and ends up killing him, in much the same way that he kills the gray man, through an act of acrobatics flipping him over the table and breaking his back. 
and they run from the inn. The innkeeper tells them to get the fuck out, and Tom, once they're out in the street, is like, yo, we gotta fucking move. It doesn't matter if the innkeeper lies and gives the defenders of the stone a made-up description. They will arrest any foreigners nearby. And Matt says, it's the luck, Matt mumbled. I figured it out. The dice. My luck works best when things are random, like dice. Not much good for cars. No good at stones. Too much pattern. It has to be random. Even finding Komar. I'd stopped visiting every inn. I walked into that one by chance. Tom, if we are going to find Egwene and the others in time, I have to look without any pattern. And so they look for the girls for days at random, just going into different inns. And the pattern needs those extra days to get everything together in a line and gather all our protagonists together. And then Tom, who has had a cough since they arrived in Tear, eventually gets so sick that Matt has to take him to Mother Gwenna, where he learns that, yeah, the girls were here. And it says, Light, I walked right past this place the first night. Right past them. I wanted random. What could be more random than where a ship docks on a rainy night and where you happen to look in a bloody lightning flash? So, compared to Rand and Perrin, who have powers that are relatively simple, all things considered, Mats are super complex, so I think it's fucking brilliant to use this one book to fully explore a single one of them and have Matt, who is not a self-aware person and not particularly good at thinking things through and coming to understand them, at least things that have to do with himself, to have this one book where he can actually gain some comprehension so that he can feel comfortable with his first power before he gets his memories and his artifacts in book four and his army in book five, or as comfortable as he can get as somebody who is constantly wanking about fate and the hand that it has dealt him can let himself be about such things. But no matter what, The Dragon Reborn's characterization of Matt is wonderful. It's a book where you get to know this person who does things that he doesn't have to do, selfless things, and we get an understanding of his distress at his lack of memory which sets the stage for the choices that he makes that shape his entire path through the next book. And we get to see how that lack of memory and the way that it weighs on him affects his thoughts, and we get to see him for this short period of time where the pattern isn't controlling him with an iron fist. Or, if it is, Matt, oblivious Matt, is too fucking oblivious to be aware of it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Podcast of the Dragon. I've looked forward to talking about Matt for ages. He's a character with endless potential for fun discussion, and I'm excited to explore him more in The Shadow Rising. You can find me on Twitter at WarderGray, that's Gray with an E. All of my links are down in the show notes. There's a link for my email, for Discord, for Watt Trivia and Games, if you want to come and play games with fun people, and for the Watt Fandom and Calendar, if you want access to a bunch of different Wheel of Time content creators. There's a link to my Patreon, if you would like to support the show and have access to some really cool bonus content. And there's also a link to Apple Podcasts. I only have one review on Apple Podcasts, so if you could rate and review the show and help me fool the world into believing that I'm more popular than I actually am, that would be amazing. If you know anyone who likes The Wheel of Time and might be interested in a different kind of podcast, please tell them about me. My music is by Kevin McLeod. I'm the Grey Warder. And I'm not a big fan of brown mustard and horseradish, 
But if the Aes Sedai had brought me some garlic mayonnaise that I could spread on that crusty bread, I'd have to use that good-as-any-fine dagger knife to slice some of that yellow cheese, and I'd have made a fuckload of roast beef sandwiches. Like, I love roast beef. Also, what are butter peas? Are they just buttered peas?